The Eighth Air Force, I think, suffered higher casualty figures than the U.S. Marine Corps, um, which is saying something. The Americans were well intentioned. They did genuinely believe they could fight a cleaner uh, war. It turned out to be. I'd be interested to hear what you have to say, Paul. But as far as I can see, it turned out to be pretty misguided. Their accuracy levels weren't actually considerably higher than those of the um, RAF. Hello and welcome to the pod. This is just a quick emergency episode for you, dear listeners, as we talk about the Allied bombing campaign and the new Apple TV series, Masters of the Air, with two experts of that campaign in World War II. Paul Bingley, historian of the US Army Air Force, and Patrick Bishop, historian of the Royal Air Force and Bomber Command. No spoilers, it's more of a general chat on the history behind it and what the show gets right and wrong. I'll hand you over to myself, Paul and Patrick. Patrick Bishop, Paul Bingley, welcome to the pod. It's great to have you both on. And we're today we're going to be talking about Masters of the Air. So just before, I'm just going to introduce you for our listeners. So Patrick probably needs no introduction. Patrick, you are, well, currently got this top uh, podcast. We've had Saul David on, we've had Roger Morehouse, but now yourself that's the battleground um podcast but more specifically for the purposes of this conversation is your bestseller bomber boys which is about the royal air force bombing campaign during the second world war so obviously that's relevant and then paul the author of bomb group which actually i think this is the very bomb group that masters of the air is depicting um not quite ollie um is is it Tell, not, pick no. me up there then, please. Okay, so it's it's based on the 100th Bomb Group, which was based at Thorpe Abbotts. Uh, but my expertise and the book that I've written, Bomb Group, is about the 381st, which was based at Ridgewell in Essex. So slightly different, but actually the stories are pretty much the same. Well, I'm in the presence of experts then. So I thought we could just kick off with... Just your immediate reaction to what you think. I think we've we, we've been given all the episodes to watch, but we're all far too busy to, ha- uh, to spend our lives watching TV shows. But I've watched four or five. Patrick, you've just told me you've watched four. Paul, I don't know how many you've watched. But Patrick, I'll just start with you. What's your initial reaction to Masters of the Air? Well, you know, it's, it's a great production, isn't it? I mean, it's wonderfully done, all the reconstruction... Uh, everything, all the technical details seem to be absolutely spot on, um, beautifully shot. Um, I think a little bit excessive use of um, computer-generated imagery, which uh, I think this is a tendency when you've got this fantastic resource, uh, there's, a, there's a slight sort of temptation just to uh, throw the whole, you know, the whole kind of uh, kitchen sink at it. And so you get these spectacular effects, which to my mind, uh, kind of reduce the drama a wee bit. And I'm, I'm thinking, actually, of, it's not dissimilar to a movie that came out in 1990 called uh, Memphis Bell, which is, follows the same sort of trajectory. It's one bomber crew, essentially. In this case, it's more of a squadron. Um, but, uh, you know, they're on their 25th, they're coming up their 25th mission. They've survived thus far. It's 1943, the same period. But, I mean, the, 
sort of restraints put on you by the technology available at that time, I think for me, uh, make the aerial scenes a bit more, a bit more real. Um, anyway, to first impressions, yeah, great stuff. But as soon as the as the Brits turn up, being you know bomber command man, um, I read a book called Bomber Boys, which came out back in the um, two thousand eight. Um, I sort of tend to see things a bit from that perspective, and I was slightly dismayed to see that the old cliches, you know, the first time you see a Brit is a toff. Uh, who's sort of deriding the American effort, and uh, you know he's sitting in the pub with his sort of looking down his nose at the American flyers, and of course it ends up with him getting into a bit of a row. Uh, there he's uh, asked outside by one of the Americans, who promptly decks him with a single blow. So you know the old limeys of what they've come up with. What do they know about uh, about aerial warfare and uh, strategic air bombing? We'll come back to that a little bit later on, but. Yeah, I mean, that cliche is slightly jarring, I have to say. But, you know, great stuff, great storytelling, great characterization, and great production value. So, yeah, definitely something to to watch on winter's evening. Yes, uh, I think it's inevitable that any uh, Royal Air Force man will be depicted like that with a, I think he had a moustache as well, didn't he? Very of important. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a little DFC, he had a DFC ribbon, I noticed as well. So he's thinking. That, but he had done a bit of flying. <laughs> yes, that, that was good of uh, John Orloff, the writer. Uh, so, Paul, what's your initial reaction? Um, well, I think, as we know, it's been a, a long time coming. I think it was something like 10 years ago that this was first mooted. And, yeah, during that period of time, there's been, a, uh, you know, we've all been waiting with bated breath. Was it going to live up to the expectations? And, you know, having written Bomb Group and looked at an American Bomb Group very closely... I was I was concerned, uh, especially with as Patrick says the CGI, the the amount of CGI in it. But to be honest, I found it extremely riveting. I found the characterizations really good, even though at the start you see Buck Clevin, uh, Austin Butler chewing on his toothpick, and you know you see the trailers. You know we're going to knock them down and this that and the other. That was a concern, but having seen the series, and to be brutally honest with you, I've seen it four times now, the whole series. Um, Wait, I, you I, went, uh, Paul, I've got to check that. You've watched, I think it's nine episodes, so you've watched each one four times. Four times, yeah. Um, call me a geek, um, but I had to get a real look at this, and I've had a very good look at it. Um, and I, I really enjoyed it. I think John Orloff is a brilliant writer, and I think he really understands what these men went through. And I think that's the thing that you come away with, especially for those who have no idea about the 8th Air Force or RF Bomber Command, for that matter. People can get a real understanding of what these guys had to go through. Uh, it's just a shame, really, that it's taken a lot of American money to show an American bomb group, whereas as probably Patrick would say, you know, why can't we do this for Bomber Command? Because equally, those guys had to do, I don't know, maybe something a bit worse doing it at night. So, um, but I really, really enjoyed it. And um, I think people watching it, even if they know nothing about the 8th Air Force, are going to be really taken with it. So yeah. that's it. Sorry, go ahead, Patrick. Well, I was just thinking, but I was interested to hear what you think about historical accuracy, Paul, in these things. I mean, we all know this is entertainment. It's not meant to be... Uh, you know, a documentary drama. But at the same time, I was sort of struck by the way that 
you know, this business about we've arrived, okay, we, we're going to do it by day. Of course, you know, there is a, they do accept that this is actually a kind of ill thought out strategy, given that the notion that uh, fleets of um, B-17s are able to cover each other with their own development turns out pretty early on to be a, a bit of a fallacy. But nonetheless, there is this sort of sense that we've arrived now, the war can really begin. But I was just looking up in the official history, the statistics of what happened in 1943. So this is where all this is set, you know, all the actions about what uh, the Eighth Air Force are doing. Um, but in, that, in 1943, the RAF dropped, and this is probably the only metric you can use to actually gauge process, given it's impossible to gauge what damage is being done on the ground by your bombs. But anyway, so bomb ton tonnage, 1943, the RAF dropped 157,000 457 tons of bombs. The United States Army Air Forces dropped 10,655. So what is that? A 15th of the tonnage dropped by the RF. The following year, when things pick up, operations uh, you know, intensify for the, for the uh, Americans, it's still, they're still lagging way behind. 525,000 roughly for the RAF, 392,000. For uh, the Americans, it's only in 1945, the first four months of 1945, when they actually get up to level pegging. So, you know, the, the strategic air campaign was basically, uh, essentially, an RAF bomber command effort. I think just a little nod to that reality would have been uh, welcome. You know, I, I, you know, I accept that this is entertainment; it's not it's strict history. What do you think, Paul? Um, I, yeah, I, I see exactly what you're saying. I think what you can say also is that the 100th bomb group who are depicted in Masters of the Air, they arrive in, I think, May 1943. And uh, before then, there was just a handful of bomb groups in the UK. Uh, it was around May and June and July when the, most of the heavy bomb groups started to arrive. So it was going to take them time to pick up. Uh, we're never going to get anywhere near what RAF Bomber Command were doing at the time. Um, so, yeah, I, I absolutely take what you're saying. Um, again, I, I, like you, I was a bit upset to, to find the RAF painted as they were in this series. Uh, in fact, it's not only that particular part in the pub, it's also a bit later on when Harry Crosby, the group navigator of the 100th, goes to a, a conference in Oxford and he meets, a, I think he's a British Army officer who... You know, it comes out with the old expression, they're, you know, they're overpaid, oversexed and over here. And, you know, I thought, here we go again. It's just, why do you have to do this? But <laughs> again, all I can say is this is an American show. It's backed by American money. And it's about American groups. So we have to kind of let them go with it to some extent. Well, one thing I wanted to ask both of you, actually, which I think is maybe represented by the early altercation between the Royal Air Force officer and the US Army Air Force officer, which is the argument over daytime bombing and nighttime bombing. And I guess the Americans are bombing during the, I mean, I'm, you can correct me because I'm sure I'm going to get this wrong, but the Americans are bombing during the day so they can see their target. It's more likely to hit. And there is an implication, and this may be incorrect, um, there's an implication that it's a more humane way of bombing. Whereas the Royal Air Force, you know, they've been under the cosh, the blitz, all that kind of stuff. It's nighttime bombing. It's just bomb the hell out of them who, you know, uh, there are enemies. It's a fight to the death. We don't really care about civilian casualties. That isn't explicitly said in the 
the, the show, but it kind of gave me that impression. And is that in any way correct? I'll start with you, Patrick. Yeah, well, that's uh, lots of sort of one way of summing it up. Um, I mean, the Americans did actually genuinely believe that the combination of flying in daylight, as I say, uh, without uh, fighter escorts believing they could actually protect themselves, um, and the combination of that and the Northern bomb site, they had a much more advanced bomb site than, than the British had, would actually allow them to hit uh, the military industrial targets that were the uh, stated uh, you know, objectives of of all strategic bombing. When the Brits learned very early on they couldn't do that with the technology available. So they did, with um, admitting it to themselves but not to the public, adopt a policy of basically just flattening cities. And the effect was hopefully you'd hit a few war batteries and so forth. But a, a major consideration was civilian morale. So the idea was that basically to terrorise the local population into abandoning support for the war effort is completely misguided and in, I think immoral in hindsight, but of course at the time it seemed the right thing to do after the Blitz, as you mentioned. So yeah, in, the, in that respect, I think the, the Americans were well-intentioned. They did genuinely believe they could fight a cleaner uh, war. It turned out to be, I'd be interested to hear what you have to say, Paul, but as far as I can see, it turned out to be pretty misguided. Their accuracy levels weren't actually considerably higher than those of the um, RAF, who by 44, they've got uh, G, they've got Oboe, they've got onboard radar. So they're actually uh, pretty good at, at uh, getting at least, you know, fairly close to where they're trying to hit. Um, but they were quite sanctimonious about it. And, th and this this attitude actually lasted into the post-war era. So something we might talk about later on about how um, the strategic air campaign is represented in film and in popular culture. Uh, they, the, the Americans never felt the same guilt uh, that we did about all those civilians who were killed, you know, some 600,000. And that was a big moral issue for Britain after the war, but it wasn't in America. We might talk about that a bit later on. Hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, you can see when the Americans first arrived, and I found this quite surprising when I was researching Bomb Group, um, the, the the idea for these guys was, we're going to go and sock it to the Germans, we're going to go and do this, we're going to go and do that, when the Brits had been doing that for quite some time before, at least two years. Um, and But that was a bravado, that was a thing that, that, that came across, and it certainly comes across in Masters of the Air. I mean, when they first arrive, um, you know, first time in the sawmill, all this kind of speak, and when you hear that in a trailer and you you think, you know, this is going to be another Hollywoodized version of something that's gone before. But actually that did occur. That was a thought in these guys' minds. You know, we've they've seen what's happened at Pearl Harbor. They've seen what's happened to the British. Uh, we're here now, as Patrick said earlier on, to come and save the Brits, to come and save the world. Um but the irony is, actually, it was it was aides like GH and, and Oboe and H2S that actually helped the Americans in the latter part of the war. So there were occasions on, for example, the first Schweinfurt-Regensburg raid on 17th of August 1943. This is also depicted in Masters of the Air when the 100th, they bomb Regensburg and they swing down towards North Africa and land there. Um, a lot of those bombs, especially on the Schweinfurt raid, which the 381st took part in, 
landed way wider than mark. So it didn't matter if you had a Norden bombsite on board. You you know, you're getting attacked by fighters, you're getting hit by flak, and the bombs are, are falling way beyond where they should do. So, yeah, to some extent, this idea that, you know, we're going to drop a bomb into a pickle barrel wasn't the case all the time. And um, certainly that was, that was shown um, in Masters of the Air. But also, again... The Americans joined with RAF Bomber Command in, in the raids on Dresden towards the end of the war, um, across two days. And, you know, I don't think any Norden bomb sites were used on those raids, to be honest with you. I think it was just a case of we need to hit them now, we need to stop them, and that's what we're going to do. So, yeah, precision bombing didn't last throughout the whole of the Second World War for the Americans, that's for sure. Having said that, Paul, I think um, you would agree with me that you know their their intentions and their kind of strategic vision was uh, clearer and more sensible than the bomber Harris bomb, you know, which is you know, basically an attack on civilian morale. If you hit anything else, it's all to be good. But the you know the air plan, uh, you know the um, two E spots is uh, oil plan rather. Uh, this is before D Day, uh, and you know there's a thought. Okay, we've got to carry on, we've got to hit things that are really going to damage the, the German war economy. And by that sense, you can actually hit synthetic oil plants and the rest of it. Uh, in fact, they got diverted to another equally uh, good targeting thing, but with some reluctance, that, which was the transportation system, in, uh, which would bring German troops into the battle area where the invasion was going to arrive. But um, but I think the, the, the American thinking was, was, um, was actually in some ways better than the British thinking. So I don't want to sort of give the impression that uh, somehow they 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 came uh, to the to the theatre in a from a position of ignorance. I think they thought it through. You know, all the whole air power theories of the 1930s were very very uh, prevalent in America among you know the father of Billy Mitchell, the, essentially the father of the of the uh, American Air Force, was a great believer in the uh, Giulio Duguet, you know, the, the Italian. Uh, air power strategy is a great follower of his, as indeed were people in Britain. But so there's a great deal of thought to go on to this idea that you, uh, this doctrine that you can actually win a war um, by air power alone. And there are many, many people who believe that in, inside the American Air Force and have given it quite a lot of thought. So there are kind of basically two doctrines in air power. So there's the, the German one, which is, you know, if you come from a land based military tradition, you think, okay, the Air Force is just a brilliant adjunct to what going on on the ground so hence the fact the germans didn't have big bombers they concentrated on medium bombers that support the infantry support the ground forces um, but the british and the american indeed the italian uh, view was no no you can actually get the whole thing settled by aerial bombardment and the ground forces just come in and finish the job so yeah there's uh, the americans had thought a lot about this and that, that's why i think as you say paul they arrived there with um what the British interpreted as a rather kind of arrogant attitude that we know all about this, we don't need to be told by you, which comes across very well in the, mm. in the series. I think to some extent as well, they were helped as well by the B-17. Uh, you know, I was about 12. to ask about the, the aircraft itself, actually, yes. Yeah, it had 12 uh, machine guns, 12 50 caliber machine guns, unlike, I don't know, Patrick could correct me here, I don't know how many on a Lancaster to my shame. Patrick? Uh, well, you've got. Uh, let me count back. You've got a. You know, you've got a. 
a nose gunner, you've got a, a mid-upper, and you've got a rear gunner, and the armament, well, it changes throughout the course of war, but at the beginning, it's a sort of 303, you know, firing the 303 uh, round, you know, a, a 50 caliber round is a big, hefty chunk of lead that will do considerably more damage. So, yeah, they're considerably, hence, you know, the flying fortress, that's why they're called flying fortresses, because they've got this yeah. round on um, and it helped, obviously, when they're flying in formation in a combat box, you've got interlocking arcs of fire. And, you know, that's where the Billy Mitchell ethos came into it, that the bomber was always going to get through. And the B-17 did have the ability to do that when it was flying in close formation. So, you know, again, I keep going back to, to the series Masters of the Air, but they depict it really well. Um even though it is CGI, and you know, if you're looking for it, you can probably tell it is CGI. But actually, if you look at it in the round, they've they've pretty much got it off to a T with the formations. And I found it quite interesting. I think in the second or third episode, uh, one of the B-17s is hit by flag. It starts dropping back in the formation, so the rest of the formation slow down and 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 guide him along because. You know, if you were lost from a formation, if you were on your own, you were easy meat for the Luftwaffe. So that was, I found that quite interesting. But yeah, it was um, it was the doctrine of the Americans, you know, close formation flying, interlocking arcs of fire from 12 machine guns per B-17. That was, that was going to help you. But the Germans quickly found the weak spot and that was to attack head on. And that's why you got 12 o'clock high, 12 o'clock right in front of the aircraft. And that's where most of the casualties were first suffered um, in the nose of the aircraft, so the bombardier and the navigator. Um, so, yeah, I, I, again, I keep going back to Masters of the Air, but I did find it really illustrating about what these men went through and, and the kind of things they had to deal with. Well, well speaking as someone who knows nothing about um, the, you know, the, the, the ins and the outs, the combat scenes are absolutely stunning, I thought, really I just was, I thought they were incredible. I, 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 I but it, on that arcs of fire, I have a, a probably rather a stupid question, but it did feel like that it was very easy for sort of friendly fire it, when you're in your, and I assume this is the case for the Lancaster as well. If you're one of the machine gun turrets and you act, did you, was this something that wasn't really discussed, but happened quite regularly when you would accidentally fire on a fellow um, aircraft? I think that's a pretty good way of putting it. It probably wasn't discussed, but I know it did happen. And you can actually see in the series as well how close some of these guys were getting to to hitting other B-17s. I think even in one of the episodes, I think one of the guys actually thinks he's hit a B-17 with his machine gun. So, I mean, they had a cutoff, especially the top turret gunner. So as he swung around, it would cut out before he got to the tail and then restart again afterwards. Uh, but obviously, you know, if you've got a B-17 flying very close alongside you, um, it's very easy in the heat of battle to to hit another B-17. And while it wasn't spoken about so much, it did happen. Well, were there, were there, this, that was something that immediately occurred to me, Ollie, so it's, uh, it's a very good question to ask. Uh, but were there drills to, I mean, if you were in this tight box, they must, did they practice uh, in order to avoid just what we're talking about? Yeah, so um, I'll talk about the 381st because that's what I've studied. Um, before they came to England, they spent three months training 
and they went through three phases of training. Each one got progressively more difficult. The second phase of training was involving formation flying. So literally you had to fly wingtip to wingtip and you'd, you'd have this combat box of high, low and lead uh, progressively staggered out. Um, but the object was you had to remain in that box, even when you're approaching the target. So we hear in Masters of the Air, you know, we're approaching the IP, the initial point. That's the point at which the bomb run starts. And at that point, the pilot would switch over control of the aircraft to the bombardier, which you see in this in this series quite often. And that meant that that aircraft could take no evasive action whatsoever. You literally just had to fly through the flak. And, you know, I found myself in episode five, I think, which was really jarring. It's the monster raid where the 100th loses 12 of its 13 B-17s. I found that really jarring. It shook me because you're literally being shaken about yourself. And I can't imagine what it must have been like having seen that flak in the distance, knowing full well you had no option but to go through it. So, again, hats off to the producers because they, they've showed up really well. Yeah, just to answer your question, Ollie, about the uh, about Bomber Command, um, as far as I'm aware, it's been, been quite a while since I've read this book and I haven't been over the subject much since, but I, I think that, you may correct me, Paul, if I'm wrong, but I, th I think there was a lot more, the bomber stream was a lot looser formation and you were capable of taking evasive action. One uh, technique was called the corkscrew. So one of the great fears of a, of a bomber crew is when they're fixed in the, the um, searchlights, uh, particularly as you're getting into the target when you, you go through layers of searchlights, it's called being coned. So it's when two, three searchlights actually fix you. And once they've fixed you, then you're, you know, it's, it's like daylight inside the aircraft. And of course the flight crews down below can see you. They've got, they've got radar to guide them on the rest of it. So it's a very, very terrifying moment, a very vulnerable moment. So, but the technique is called the corkscrew, where they immediately throw the Lancaster, even though it's a big, heavy plane, bigger than the, than the uh, B-17. Um, it was actually quite effective uh, and it was quite a maneuverable aircraft uh, despite its size. So that was one way of taking evasive action, which in the accounts that you read it over and over again, you know, the aircraft gets code and the pilot throws it into a corkscrew and they uh, often, uh, with good result, they, they escape. So, yeah, I think I think uh, you had a lot more latitude as a pilot uh, of a Lancaster than you would have of a, a B-17. Well, one thing that I thought the show did really effectively was showing the losses suffered by the whole squadron. It's a succession of pilots that come in, I don't want to give too many too much away for for listeners in in case they haven't seen it, but it reminded me actually of a film that was made in 1945, The Way to the Stars. I don't know if you've seen that, which is a a, a film depicting a, an RAF squadron, and you don't have any shots actually of of any aircraft at all, and no flying, no combat. It's all pretty much based around the 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 airfield, but it really did capture. I just wondered if you could just talk a little bit about the, the casualties suffered, because I think there was extraordinary percentages of, of aircrew were, were killed or, or captured. Yeah, I think uh, for the Americans, I can't speak for Bomber Command, but the 8th Air Force, I think, suffered higher casualty figures than the US Marine Corps, uh, which is saying something. 
Um, again, I'll go back to the 381st. Uh, 381st arrived in England in June 1943. It carried out 297 combat missions for the loss of 165 B-17s. That's in raids and accidents. You had 10 men on the crew of a B-17. So effectively, you know, 1,650 men became casualties. As it was at Ridgewell, it was something like 1,290 who were casualties missing in action or, or killed in action. But um, the worst mission the 381st took part in was on 17th of August, 1943. So it's a raid on Schweinfurt's ball bearing plants. And during that raid, it lost 11 B-17s, so 110 men. And, you know, again, Masters of the Air captures this really well. And it's something that I didn't really consider until I started to research this book. We talk in numbers about aircraft going down and men going missing in action or being taken prisoner or killed or, or whatever. But the effect that has on the people back at the base is eye-opening. Um, you know, 110 men suddenly go missing in action, 110 men who'd had breakfast earlier that morning, and now suddenly the mess halls are completely silent. The the Nissan huts are empty. Um, and Masters of the Air does a really good thing where, again, in episode five, during this mission to Munster, they lose 12. 120 men have gone missing. Only one B-17 makes it back to Thorpe Abbott's. And there the crew are sat in the interrogation room being asked what happened to this aircraft serial number, what happened to that aircraft serial number. And no one had been able to see what was going on because they were too busy shooting at Germans. So it's a really interesting aspect of Masters of the Air. And I think really this is one of the important things that this series is going to get across is some things that you don't consider what these men went through coming back to an emptiness and heart. Your friend's gone, uh, a replacement comes. You don't want to get to know that replacement because he could go missing as well. It's a really, really interesting aspect of, of, of the air war in general. I think it was, was the same as well for, for Bomber Command. I was quite struck by the fact they did actually, in the four episodes I saw, there was some reference to an understanding by the crews of what was happening on the ground. It comes when... Uh, Bucky, is it Buck or Bucky? Because what is called <laughs> anyway. The yeah, the guy who survives uh, is in London on leave, and he 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 goes off with a Polish girl he meets, and uh, they they're looking out the window of her flat as the German raiders come in on on London, and he he for the first, he says the first time I've been on the receiving business ever, as he puts it of an air raid. And I think that was quite a, a, a kind of subtle and an interesting way of getting across that, it, you know, even though in the air you were just trying to survive, get through, drop your bombs, get back in, not spending too much time thinking about what was going to happen on the ground, uh, you had to be pretty insensitive not to know uh, what the likely uh, effect was, um, especially if you witnessed a blitz in London. So I thought that was so, you know, well done uh, to the series for actually pointing that out. And what and, was the? Uh, sorry, sorry. Go ahead, Paul. I was going to say. I mean, this is uh, the other good thing about the series is uh, it's not. I think what they would say nowadays binge worthy. You're not going to sit there and watch all nine episodes one after the other because it's too draining to watch. And the interesting thing is, you you come out of the aerial combat into the pub, 
or you're in London or you're a flat house. And the 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 viewer is allowed to to kind of follow that journey. And I find that really interesting as well. Um, because these guys had this really surreal experience where they were one minute fighting for their lives over Berlin and the next minute they were down the pub in Thorpe Abbots. And a similar story as well for Bomber Command. Um I, I was interested in um, because one of the the character you 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 mentioned there, Patrick, who at one point shows, I think, because he's seen a lot of his friends die, he hasn't got much sympathy for the um, for the recipients of the bombs on the ground. And I wondered what what I mean. I guess there's no one attitude. They didn't all think the same thing. But was there a kind of overlying approach to, well, this this is a job, it may not be a particularly nice job, but it's a job we've got to do? Or was it, you know, they deserve everything they've got? And yeah, I, I mean, my, uh, I, so I spoke to, when I was researching my book, a lot of these survivors were still around, and I, I spoke to loads of them uh, in the course of the research. And I think they pretty much all said the same thing, that once you, uh, the sort of rights and wrongs of what they were doing, were very much the last things on their on their minds. What they were actually engaged in was getting through their tour of uh, 30, 30 ops, twenty five, I think, in the case of the Americans, and it was just everything, every, all your energy, all your mental energy, all your physical energy was focused on the next stop, getting through the next stop, getting to the target, dropping your bombs, getting back, and just ticking them off, you know, and. All other thoughts were extraneous, including the thoughts of your family, your friends, and all the rest of it. Everything came down to the crew, the captain, getting through the mission. And so it was only subsequently, I think, that they gave much thought to this. And I, I, I think the general view of Britain, which I think was reflected in the in the cruise, was, well, the Germans started this, they blitzed us. Uh, this is the only way we can hit back at them. Uh, the nation is the enemy, insofar as they say they articulated this. And so, um, you know, the Germans are getting what, what what's coming to them. But I don't think anyone exulted in this. I don't think anyone took pleasure in this. In fact, there was one slightly jarring note about when um, Bucky or Puck hears that his mate has gone down. And he says, you know, there's this sort of code about um, yeah, the team, you know, he's a sporting analogy, you know, um, are we playing tomorrow? You know, I'll be there at the start. You know, as a kind of revenge, I don't think people did... If they lost a, a, a comrade, a friend, buddy, and a crew or something, I don't think they got into the airplane uh, the following day thinking I'm going to go and get one back from you know Ted or Derek or Dave or whatever. I think it was just more about your own survival. It's really about your own survival, um, and hence you know the, the relationships between crew members were very very intense. Often, I think something that was more the case in Bomber Command than it might have been in. Um, in the um, Eighth uh, Air Force, was the kind of disparity of, of the sort of social, geographical disparity of the crews. They they came, you know, so you'd have some toff, not necessarily flying the plane. It might be you had old Etonians as rear gunners, but I think something like that does come across about the geographical disparity of the American crews. But in in, in Bomber Command, it wasn't just where you came from in England. You know, a lot of them. Were, You'd have an Aussie or a New Zealander, and again, you know, very class-conscious Britain. You'd have these very different sort of people from very, very different backgrounds, all in the same enclosed space, 
all utterly having to rely on each other, which sort of adds, I think, greatly to the sort of uh, to the interest of the of the, that particular fighting experience. Yeah, Paul. I wondered, what what was there? A, was is there a similar sentiment with the American air crews regarding their job? Uh, yeah, I mean, when the Americans first arrived, the tour of duty was twenty five missions, and you see that in Masters of the Air. But actually, partway through the war, it gets increased to thirty, and then it gets increased to thirty five. So if you were partway through your tour, you got another few missions lumped on at the end of it. And these guys, you know, it became clear that each mission was, it could be your last. Um, so to have another group of, of missions tagged on at the end of your tour was was a bit of a killer. And you can see that again in Masters of there. It's a good, good illustration of, of, of what they had to do. That came about through Jimmy Doolittle when he took over as the 8th Air Force commander. Um, he changed the kind of tactics he made the 8th Air Force bomber boys effectively the bait, uh, sending them in, but with the fighters ahead to draw the Luftwaffe up in order for them to be shot down. And then the bombers would go and destroy any replacements on the ground. But at this time, the attrition in bomber crews was reducing. So crews were, were finishing their tours and going off back to the States to become instructors or whatever. So these experienced guys were going and there weren't as many crews coming through to replace them. So that was one of the reasons why um, this tour was extended and again uh, extended to 35, which you can only imagine if you're having to go through this on a daily basis to know that you've got another five missions on top of what you're expecting. Yeah, it's uh, that would have been a killer. Uh, right. Well, I think uh, we're probably coming to the end. I, I just wanted to talk a little bit because, Patrick, you alluded to this earlier, the the kind of response in popular culture. You mentioned Memphis Bell. Um, there, the sort of there's the Battle of Britain, which probably many people have watched. But I remember um, I've I read a very good um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Kurt Vonnegut, his Slaughterhouse Five novel, which is not uh, complimentary either to the British or the bombing campaign. And that's a sort of an American viewpoint from the ground there in, in during the Second World War. So I just wondered um, from both the sort of a British and American, um, I guess, a legacy of, of the bombing campaign for, for, for both countries, starting with you, Patrick, again. Yeah, I think Kurt Vonnegut was, was unusual in uh, taking that view. If you just look at the uh, you know, popular culture aftermath how how um the bombing american bombing campaign is represented uh there's very little guilt as you rightly said paul uh you know the uh usaf was at uh yeah they they were very much there at dresden they were also forgotten at hamburg you know with the first big uh, massive death toll civilian death toll that uh of the uh air war in Hamburg, there were American bombers there as well. But none of this is sort of present in American popular culture. So there have been uh, several films, uh, all showing it in the American contribution to the strategic air campaign in a positive light. The first one was in 1949. It's Gregory Peck uh, arrives to take over command of a bomber unit that's suffering from low morale because of the losses you've been talking about. Um, and whips it into shape, and then it's 
you know, it's a, it's a very, very good film. It opens with a brilliant, brilliant sequence mm. of a of an abandoned bomber base uh, in East Anglia, an American bomber base. Fabulous opening sequence of the sort of flapping doors. And uh, the narrator says, you know, only a few years ago, this was a very different, and he sort of cuts this bustling, you know, very energetic, warlike atmosphere. Uh, it's sort of a melancholy sort of flat field is, is the sort of ghostly memory of all this. Um, but it's all done in a very positive way. There was no British film about the about the reality of the uh, of the of the bombing campaign. There's the Dan Busters. We all remember the Dan Busters. That's about a specific operation, which is a success, and no one can argue with the fact that you know a dam that supplies the power to the Ruhr, where the German war machine is in roaring away. Um, can, no one can possibly dispute the, the value of that operation. There's another one called. Um, Appointment in London with Dirk Bogart came out in 1953. That's very much about the psychological effects, the stresses and trains, quite, you know, um, pioneering for its time. But nothing that actually describes the business as this series does, at night after night, going out against appalling odds, the horrific experience of this very new form of warfare, the effect it has on the people, and alluding to the effect that it has uh, on the on the people underneath you. Um, I mean, I think that's long overdue. Maybe uh, it, it would be great if, if Masters of the Air actually prompted some British uh, equivalent. Uh, I won't hold my breath because I think the costs are absolutely enormous. Um, but uh, there we are. Yeah, I, mean, we'll, we'll be, I think we'll be waiting a long time to see that. But it, it would be a brilliant uh, enterprise if someone was to take it on. Mm. I think you're right, Patrick. I think a lot of it goes back to the guilt. Um, I think probably at the end of the Second World War, when Winston Churchill didn't acknowledge really Bomber Command because of what had happened recently at Dresden, um, painted Bomber Command in in in, a, in an unfair light. And I think we know it wasn't until, what was it, 2007, 2008, when the Bomber Command Memorial was erected, it took so long for that to happen. So, I mean, the Americans don't have that kind of guilt. Yes, Dresden was the blot on the landscape, but um, in general, those crews are seen as doing a good thing. And whether it was because they were meant to be precision bombing or not, I don't know. Um, but yeah, they don't have the same guilt that RF Bomber Command has. And I think that's a bit unfair. And I think... You know, there are these two scenes in Masters of the Air where the Brits are shown in this not favourable light, <laughs> equally unfair. So hopefully, as you say, one day, um, finances allowing, they do something for the men of RF Bomber Command. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's been fantastic and a great way to end of it. Both of you, thank you so much. Paul, um, your book, Bomb Group, Patrick, Bomber Boys. I've put links in the show notes for everyone. I've put links in for a few other things we've discussed. And that just leaves me to thank you. And to listeners, enjoy watching Masters of the Air. Thank you very much, Ollie. Thank you, Patrick. Thanks for having me on. Yes, really enjoyed it. Cheers. Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed that. Thank you for listening. If you ask me, the chances of a series being made here in the UK about Lancaster's bombing Hamburg and Dresden are zero which is a shame because there is a debate to be had about the nuances of history, but there you are.
Tomorrow's episode is with Gordon Corrigan as he discusses great British commanders of World War II and Bomber Harris makes an appearance. But until then, thank you and good night. <laughs>